Hello everyone, my name's Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. I'm uh, continuing the Roman story from 476 onward to 1453. One of the great tragedies of the story I'm telling is that the Roman Empire ceased to be. There are no modern people who continue the Byzantine legacy directly. And that's why I enjoy listening to the Bulgarian History Podcast. It's uh, heartwarming for those of us who've become quite attached to the Roman story to see the influence it had on cultures still in existence today. So I'm looking forward to hearing about the cultural exchange and hopefully learning more about the Bulgarian side from the Bulgarian History Podcast. Let's get back to the story. Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 13, Bulgaria Reborn. Now, we left off last time with Boris's final decision to adopt Orthodox Christianity and the arrival of the disciples of Kirill Methodius in Bulgaria. We finish with the mention that these changes were a part of a larger cultural shift within Bulgaria. So, this episode is going to be about the last years of Boris's reign, as well as about these cultural shifts and the men who led them. But first, a minor aside. As my research in this period has continued, I discovered some juicy details about some of the questions which Boris posed to the Eastern and Western Christian churches mentioned in the last episode. Now, frankly, these were way too good not to share. So, here we go. Some examples taken from A Concise History of Bulgaria by R.J. Crampton include, Does the ruler have to eat at the same table as everyone else in his court? A big concern. When can the ruler hunt? Another good question. And best of all, can you have sex on Sundays? Good questions, Boris. Good questions. Okay, so, back to the narrative. Now, it's necessary to talk about two men, if we're going to talk about these larger cultural shifts, because these two men led so many of those shifts in that they established two centers of learning. These men were Saints Nom and Clement, of course, they became saints later, so for now we'll just call them Nom and Clement. Both of them were previously mentioned as some of the most important disciples of Kirill and Methodius, who had just been welcomed into Bulgaria following their banishment from Great Moravia. Now, their work is going to prove just as essential, if not even more so, than their predecessors, Kirill and Methodius. Now, of course, we can't be surprised that we know very little about their early lives. Nome appears to have been a Slav who followed Kirill Methodius on their work and travels, while we know that Clement was born in the southwest area of the Bulgarian Empire around the lakefront town of Ohrid, which he would, with which he would be eventually become very closely associated. So that's really about it. That's all we really know about their early lives. We can kind of estimate both of them were Slavs, both of them were from Bulgaria, 
Both of them had just returned home, leading these disciples. So, they arrived in Belgrade, which was then part of Bulgaria, as always you can see a map on the website, in 886 at the invitation of that city's governor. They were soon invited to Pliska to meet Boris. Now, of course, we know that in this period, religion and politics are closely connected, very, very closely connected, even more so than in the last few centuries. In Boris, he had a plan based on this principle. His plan was to establish two literary schools in Pliska and in Ohrid, and that these schools would become centers of learning in his new Christian state. They would aid in the creation of an independent culture, which would greatly aid Boris in challenging the power of the Byzantine culture. So why were they doing this? Because if you look at these three elements, the state, culture, widely, kind of widely seeing it, and religion, in this period, in order to really maintain the independence of all three, you need to have all three independent. In the sense that if you lose the independence of the state, then it's going to be extremely difficult to maintain the independence of the church and the independence of your culture. At the same time, if you lose the independence of your culture, it's going to be difficult to maintain the independence of your state and of your religion. And of course, if you lose the independence of your religion, something Boris feared greatly, then it's going to be very difficult to maintain an independent state and an independent culture. So these three elements work together very, very closely, and it's important to strengthen them all and make sure they are on their own and not associated with another power. So this is something which we can really see is absolutely paramount on Boris's mind. So a quick point here on geography. Now, we should all know by now where Pliska is. It's been the capital for a few hundred years. But Ohrid is new to our story. So Ohrid is a town which still exists today on the shores of Lake Ohrid in southwest Macedonia along the border with Albania. I highly recommend a visit as it's a beautiful and well-preserved place, if occasionally the victim of some historical revisionist labeling, but that's something we're going to talk about much later down the road. The location, the location seems an interesting choice for the Bulgarians and for Boris, as this was a newly acquired territory which was quite close to the Byzantine border. But as the Macedonian Slavs were the newest addition to the Bulgarian state, I can imagine that this learning center was placed there in some way to target them more directly with this new cultural and religious learning. So, why spend the effort to establish these schools? Why did Boris really have to make this such a priority, as we just mentioned it was? Well, as I just sort of talked about, he knew that if his people were going to forge an independent identity, they needed a language, they needed an alphabet, they needed a culture. Now, Christianity itself was going to provide a lot of this, but the domination of orthodoxy by Greeks made relying on it solely a dangerous proposition for the future of the state. Independent centers of learning were vital, and Clement and Nome would be the leaders of this task, because only by creating these real centers of learning was Boris going to be able to concentrate enough well-educated and driven people who were going to be able to create, again, not just culture, but this language, this alphabet, and, and really develop a, a level of independence based on those two things. So, Clement was sent to Ohrid, his home region, this made sense, to establish a school there, while Nom was kept in Pliska to do the same. Contemporary sources claim that between 886 and 907, around 3,500 priests and scholars were trained at the Ohrid school alone. 
Von Antwerp points out that this is almost certainly an exaggeration. But, nonetheless, the school does appear to have wasted no time providing education to people from all over Bulgaria, equipping the new state to challenge Greek cultural dominance. Within a generation, the priests working in Bulgaria went from being mostly Greek to mostly Slavic in origin. This is a huge shift to make in one generation, because remember, it's one thing, in, as we think kind of in today's terms, it's one thing to just take a generation and educate them. You know, we have universities, we have lots of resources to, to do this, but educating a whole generation so you can make that shift essentially from scratch? I mean, these learning centers weren't there before. And not only this, as we know, the state had just transitioned and converted to Christianity. So I think you can really see this as a rather remarkable achievement, rather remarkable that this was done so quickly in such a kind of uh, fluctuating and changing period. And so, in many ways, these developments really signaled the true end of Bulgar independence and the independence of the Proto-Bulgarian language. So, as we mentioned, Boris had already killed many of the most prominent Boyar families. You know, when we talk about Boyar families, they're, I think, more or less or all you know, Proto-Bulgarians, they're all Bulgars, <clears throat> after they led a revolt. But much more than that, by this time, the Proto-Bulgarian language was spoken by such a tiny minority in the country that there was little or no reason to even translate the sacred texts of Christianity into the language. Thus, in combination with many other factors, Old Church Slavonic also became the sacred liturgical language, adding one more reason for Proto-Bulgarians' demise. This demise was so complete that modern Bulgarians' words taken from Proto-Bulgarian can be counted on your fingers alone. So, to wrap that up a little bit and summarize, why does Proto-Bulgarian disappear as a language? Because Old Church Slavonic becomes the language of the church, because Slavonic and Slavic languages are spoken by the overwhelming majority of the population, because Slav Slavic languages are about to get their own alphabet, whereas Proto-Bulgarian at this point still doesn't have an alphabet. So all the advantages are really going to Slavic languages, which is why Proto-Bulgarian essentially is going to vanish. So, because of all these factors, it's around this point in history that most Bulgarians befer, begin to refer to Bulgarian as a language and to Bulgarians as a people, as a single unit of people. Now, I began doing this a little bit earlier for the sake of clarity of language. Uh, it's a little bit awkward to constantly talk about Proto-Bulgarian, Proto-Bulgarian, say these things over and over. It just sounds a bit strange, so I made some, you know, my own little revisions in how to talk about these things, but you should know that in general, before this period, you can think of Bulgaria as a single state, but with Proto-Bulgarians and Slavs as distinct people with distinct languages and cultures within that state. Now, as we mentioned, their blending has been happening for around the last 200 years, but the reign of Boris is commonly seen as a convenient marker for the end of this process. So, we can take a moment and really appreciate what a huge marker this really is, that over all this period, over the 200 plus years that Bulgaria has existed as a state at this point, the main kind of process that the state has been going through has been this gradual merging of Proto-Bulgarians and Slavs, and that this is finally over. And that, as we talked about before, this is going to mean that Bulgaria is going to have a much easier time surviving the sort of difficulties of its history as it goes along. 
And on that point, this is incredibly detailed because the Bulgarian state is going to vanish from the map of Europe, not just once, but twice and for centuries. So the cementing of the distinct peoples and cultures and languages of these lands into something unified and coherent is really the only way Bulgaria could have ever survived these periods. If the conversion to Christianity and the binding together of the Slavs and the Proto-Bulgarians had not happened, it's very likely that Bulgaria could have been yet another state which flashed onto the map of Europe for two or three hundred years before vanishing into the sands of time. So, of course, as a part of this, very importantly, Nalm and Clement are going to help create the Cyrillic alphabet over the coming years, mostly in Pliska, to replace the Glagolitic one which was developed by Kirill and Metodius. Glagolitic, as I mentioned in the previous episode, was really difficult to write and was entirely foreign to its new users. But you'll recall that the Bulgarian state up to this point had, a, had kind of adapted its lack of an alphabet by using the Greek one. Thus, Nolman Clement decided to base the new Slavic alphabet largely on the Greek one in order to aid its simplicity and the ease of transition for those who already knew how to write in Greek. So today, if you look at Kyrillic and if you look at the Greek alphabet, you'll notice actually quite a few similarities between them. As someone who's been using modern Cyrillic alphabet for a number of years, I can also point out that it has some really clear advantages. It is simple and it is phonetic. With few exceptions, each letter represents one distinct sound. Now, I know that sounds crazy to all of us English speakers. What does that mean? That Having one letter mean one sound? Why not have two letters mean three or four different sounds, depending on the context? Doesn't that make much more sense? No, no, it does not. As someone who's taught English for many years, uh, let me tell you, if you've never taught English and it's your native language, you probably don't quite appreciate just how crazy the language is and just how uh, little logic there is in much of it. But trust me, it's a problem. It's, uh, it gets very, very complicated sometimes. So, uh, to illustrate this uh, kind of difference, I'm going to share a quick personal story. So, you all know that my family name is Halsey. It's a rather old English name. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can document it going back a very, very long time. And most people in the U.S. today are completely incapable of pronouncing my name. I mean, really totally incapable. However, when I first came to Bulgaria to study around five years ago, I was allowed to choose how my name would be transliterated into Kyrillic. So, I made sure that this was done exactly how it said, Halsey. As a result, everyone, I mean everyone, 100% of people in Bulgaria pronounce my name perfectly, every time. So, the simple phonetic nature of Cyrillic is such that I can get Bulgarians pronounced my name much better than Americans. Now, that should tell you a lot about how useful it is to have a nice phonetic alphabet. And it should also tell you how, to the extent to which having this be a very simple and phonetic alphabet must have greatly aided the ability of the average, you know, not well-educated person to learn how to use it. Also, I need to make another quick point here, in case uh, you haven't noticed this point up until now. The Cyrillic alphabet is not a Russian alphabet. I can repeat that. The Cyrillic alphabet is not a Russian alphabet. It was invented in Bulgaria and, frankly, represents one of Bulgaria's great gifts to the world, one of the most brilliant pieces of culture to come out of this country. So, to everyone out there, if you've done this before, 
please stop referring to anything written in Cyrillic as if it is written in Russian. A minor other point, the Russian Cyrillic alphabet is actually different than the Bulgarian Cyrillic alphabet, which is different from the Ukrainian Cyrillic alphabet, which is different from the Yugoslav Cyrillic alphabet. So, there are several different versions of it. None of them, well, except for the Russian one, really, but the general alphabet was not invented in Russia. Okay, so sorry for the minor rant about that stuff, but uh, trust me, if you think that Bulgaria has given the world a few really cool things and people tend to not attribute them to Bulgaria, well, it hurts a little bit. You know, it's a, this country's tried very hard and it deserves to get some credit. So back to the narrative. So while Clement and Nome were teaching a new class of Bulgarian scholars and priests and creating a new alphabet, things were changing quickly all around them. Bulgaria's religious conversion had, in spite of Boris's best efforts, brought the state closer to the Byzantines, such that while many people were struggling to develop an independent cultural, religious, and linguistic identity, quote, Meanwhile, Greeks in all fashion in Bulgaria, Greek artisans came with Greek priests to build churches and houses suitable for Christian gentlemen. The Bulgars even strove to obtain some part of the famous learning of the Greeks. The nobles hastened to send their sons to Constantinople in order to perfect their education. Thither among them came Prince Simeon, younger son of the Khan himself. Boris was well informed about events in the imperial palace. He knew that growing up there was a prince, the youngest son of the Emperor Basil, whom his father designed to, for the patriarchal throne. Boris thought the idea excellent. It smacked of true Cesaro-Papism. His younger son should go to Constantinople and should come back in due course, stocked with Greek lore, to become Archbishop and Primate of Bulgaria, from Runciman, page 123. So, if you didn't catch everything in that quote, it was written about 100 years ago. The language is a bit strange at times. You don't hear the word thither very often. But, so what it's saying is that Greek fashions were still very popular in Bulgaria. Of course, that's not going to change overnight. Even though Bulgaria is trying to develop some independent uh, culture and such, that's not going to change the fact that Byzantine culture is still a very, very powerful kind of uh, magnetic force. And so many people are sending their children to Constantinople to receive education. And these people included Boris. So Boris importantly sent his son Simeon to Constantinople to be educated. And the idea was that when he came back, he would one day become the Bulgarian patriarch. And so this would again help to really unify Bulgaria because, of course, Boris was creating an immensely powerful new office. When he's making a patriarchate, he's going to create uh, a new kind of person within Bulgaria who's not going to be as powerful as him, but almost. He's going to be a, a near supreme religious leader. And so I'm sure in Boris's mind, it's very important early on to make sure that whoever kind of obtains this position is someone he can trust and he can control. So who better than his son? Of course, also sending his son to study in Constantinople will give his son the best possible Christian education and will get hopefully develop good relationships with the Byzantines. So Boris was building a legacy and he had very specific goals for all of his sons to fulfill this legacy, not just Simeon. So from now on, Bulgaria would need not just a political and military leader, but a spiritual one as well. We just mentioned the Patriarch. And Boris intended for all these roles to stay within his family. So, in 889, after a, role, a reign of 36 years, Boris took the remarkable step of resigning to live in a monastery. 
Now, this is possibly as a, also as a result of some sickness. Uh, good for him. I, I think not many of us take our doctor's advice when they say take it easy, but he seems to have listened if this was the case. And this tells us several things. First, Boris clearly believed that his legacy was secure and that it was wiser to hand over the reins of power at this stage rather than wait until his death. Uh, another lesson that very few rulers ever really take in. Second, that Boris was quite sincere in his religious conversion. I mean, he was deciding to spend his last days focusing entirely on religion. And I think this really speaks volumes about who he was and how he must have felt about this religious conversion. But, as Ronsamen points out, quote, Boris was well pleased. He had seen his country through the vastest revolution in its history. He had inherited it as a great power. He had made it a great civilized power. He could now vie on equal terms with the Frankish monarchs, even with the emperor himself. And his country's church was his to control. He had made the world realize that. It's from Rensman, page 129. Now, to put it another way, another quote, over two centuries, an enormous change is visible. Since the 680s, the Bulgar Khan had been a warrior chief, leading bands of horsemen and nomads, primarily seeking grazing grounds and booty. By the 1880s, he had become a Christian, Slavic prince presiding over a settled state with defined territorial boundaries, on the whole, and having a nascent system of law and administration, from von Antwerp, page 129. So Boris's re resigning seems pretty reasonable, actually, when you consider what he's accomplished. And let's not forget, he's done all this in spite of his losing several wars. I mean, I honestly can't decide if it's more impressive to lose a war and come out well than to win it in the first place. But either way, by this point, Boris had an important influence in the legal structure in Bulgaria. I know when I mentioned some of the more humorous questions he posed to Christian leaders about his conversion, uh, but there were only there were actually dozens of these kinds of questions, and many of them showed that he had a very keen attention to detail and cared greatly about the importance of law. So, Boris implemented a modified Byzantine legal code, the Ekloga, for those who are interested, for use in Bulgaria before he resigned. Now, today, scholars debate whether this work was done in Bulgaria or whether it was actually brought from Moravia by the followers of Kirill Methodius, but regardless, wherever it came from, the implementation of this legal code was a huge step forward in the Bulgarian legal system. Von Antor points out that it dealt with, quote, such matters as penalties for paganism, testimony of witnesses, distribution of war booty, sexual morality, marital relations, arson, theft, illegal enslavement, responsibility of a master for the behavior of a slave, slave and offenses involving horses and livestock also from page 129. <clears throat> now, Boris also unsurprisingly built a lot of churches throughout Bulgaria, including seven grand cathedrals to mark the seats of his new archdiocese. The grandest of them was the Cathedral in Pliska, which was the longest in Europe at the time, 99 meters. For Americans, that's, well, I didn't do the conversion, but around 300 feet, somewhere thereabouts. Now, the Bulgarian monastic tradition also began at this time, and this is a tradition which continues today, so many monasteries were also being built. So, even though Boris, of course, he doesn't get the moniker, the builder, but he was quite a builder and quite a creator in his time. 
So, in general, it would appear that as Boris is retiring to one of these new monasteries, and as he's putting his eldest son Vladimir in charge, things look good, things look stable. The state is prosperous, things aren't seem to be going just very well in general. But Vladimir had been born before Boris's conversion to Christianity and had spent decades awaiting his chance to rule. During this time, he had developed close ties with the boyars and quite possibly a deep resentment of his father. You know how these royal intrigues work. You've seen movies, read books. It's a pretty typical story. Now, the same boyars who had everything to lose as a result of Boris's policies, their independence, their religion, all these things, were the same boyars who had so recently rebelled against Boris and his religious conversion. And now, they had the opportunity to lead another rebellion. This time, a rebellion from within. So Vladimir and the boyars reversed many of Boris's policies. Immediately. They sought an anti-Byzantine alliance with the Franks, and they most importantly declared the state to be pagan again. That's right. Vladimir converted Bulgaria back to paganism, or at least declared that it was now pagan. Churches and monasteries across the country were destroyed and defaced. Even the newly completed wonder of a, of a cathedral in Pliska wasn't spared the wrath of Vladimir. So just four years after leaving the capital for the monastery, Boris was forced to return in 893 to confront his son's apostasy. This counter-coup, counter-revolution, if you will, was swift and violent. Almost the entire population and aristocracy were on the side of Boris. Vladimir didn't stand a chance. He was blinded, his wife's head was shaved, and both vanished into a dungeon, never to be seen or heard from again. Once this business was finished, Boris reconvened a great council to find a way forward. But the council did not convene at Pliska. It convened at nearby Preslav. It was decided that the old Bulgarian and pagan roots of Pliska had finally made it unsuitable as a capital. So the more Slavic and the more Christian Preslav was chosen as the new Christian capital of Bulgaria. It was also conveniently located near the monastery where Boris was living, allowing him to closely monitor things from his retirement. As mentioned, the Pliska Literary School was going to follow the capital and move to his new location. So, I talked before about the Pliska Literary School. You may have never heard of this because it very quickly became known as the Preslav Literary School, in case you were wondering. <clears throat> now, it was also this council which decided that Prince Simeon, prior to his living in a monastery and preparing to take over the Bulgarian church, uh, would be released from his monastic vows and instead thrusted into a very different position that of Tsar. Now, Simeon had been well prepared for this, despite the fact that his whole life he thought he would become a patriarch. He had basically, in part, grown up in Constantinople. He had seen how power was wielded by the emperor, and he had attended some of the finest universities in the world. He was even called Hemiargos, or half-Greek, by some of his contemporaries. But perhaps most importantly, he had not grown up with the knowledge that he would one day inherit the throne. Anyone who studied royal histories around the world knows 
that the, knows the kind of negative effects that a lifetime of waiting and entitlement can have on a boy. I mean, look at Vladimir. But being taken from a religious and scholarly life and into the halls of power to rule in response to a crisis? Well, historically speaking, that situation has made many a great leader. So yes, I'm leaving you at the onset of the reign of Simeon the Great. His name gives you some indication of what's to come. But what kind of ruler is he going to be? The rulers of Constantinople were delighted with ascension because they believed it signaled a new level of Greek influence in the Bulgarian court. But were they right? Well, you're going to have to tune in next time to find out. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook or writing us a review on iTunes. But seriously, by liking us on Facebook, you can keep track of the latest developments and occasionally see some interesting articles and images from Bulgarian history that I'm going to start posting there. I haven't been as active on the Facebook page as I'd like to, and I'm going to try to start changing that very soon. So, what are you waiting for? Also, of course, check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you're going to find useful resources that are going to come along with each episode. For this episode, I've got a couple of useful maps that you'll definitely want to check out. And as always, please consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. After a year of work, making about six hours of content for you all, it's a big deal whenever anyone decides to show their appreciation. So really think about it. This week, we'd like to send out a huge thanks to Ryan Foster, Yorki Petrov, and Luka Pirecik for their donations. All three of you, thanks so much. All right, so until next time, Uspech, or in English, good luck.